Good morning. If you all are well this morning, if you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2 is where we are going to be today. We've got two weeks to go until Christmas, and so hopefully you got your shopping done. If you're planning on doing that Amazon Prime two-day thing, that's, that ain't happening. <laughs> you, better, you better order your stuff now if you want to get it by Christmas. If you, don't have your, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you should be able to find one in one of the chair racks that are there in front of you, and if you don't know where to find stuff in the Bible, we are going to be on page 1002. 1002 is where you will find Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, which are the verses that we'll be considering together today. There is a 2016 film that won a couple of Academy Awards called Manchester by the Sea. Manchester by the Sea is a film about a janitor living in the Boston area named Lee Chandler. And Lee Chandler spends his days doing pretty menial tasks. He's throwing out abandoned furniture, he's unclogging toilets, he's fixing leaky showers, and when his day is over, he goes to his single-room apartment in the basement of one of the buildings. He's a loner, he is by himself, and one of the, one, one of the day he receives a phone call from home. And in this phone call, he finds out that his brother, who had a known heart condition, has suffered a heart attack, and he's not doing well. And so Lee immediately jumps into the car to head back to his hometown where he grew up of Manchester by the sea. By the time Lee arrives, his brother has already passed away, and he's not going to have the opportunity to say goodbye to him. As he begins the bewildering process of making arrangements, and if you've ever found yourself in that position, there are all kinds of questions when you have a loved one pass away about what steps to take and what are the order of those steps that need to be taken. Lee finds himself in that situation, and as he is moving along through that process, he meets with the attorney who reads to him his brother's will. And as his, the attorney is reading to him the brother's will, he is shocked to find out that his brother has named him the legal guardian of his 16-year-old son, Patrick. His brother has set things up so that Lee can move back to Manchester by the sea, live in the house that's paid for, have some money, and raise Patrick who, until he gets out of high school. But Lee doesn't want to do it. In fact, he is dead set against returning to Manchester and caring for Patrick. And as we're watching the film, we're wondering why this would be the case, why, why he would have such a visceral reaction against moving home to take care of this boy that's in need. But as the story moves on, we realize that there is a terrible reason why Lee doesn't want to come home. That reason we find out is that several years ago when, when Patrick was a young boy, Lee had been living in Manchester by the sea with his wife and his three children. 
He had been partying with his friends one night. They had been drinking late into the night at his house, doing some drugs, when his wife kicked everybody out of the house. And it was a cold night, so Lee built up the fire a little bit and then walked to the corner store to get some food because he was too drunk to drive. When he returned from the corner store, he found that his home was engulfed in flames. Emergency personnel was there caring for his wife, who had escaped relatively unharmed, but his three children had not. And so that is why Lee had left Manchester. He'd even tried to commit suicide. And as we see him throughout this film, he is a man who is filled with guilt, a man who is filled with shame, a man who is filled with anger. He can hardly show his face in Manchester, and as he's been called back to to make arrangements for his brother, everywhere he turns, he is faced with the past. He runs into his ex-wife who has been remarried and is going to have a baby. He runs into old high school friends, people who won't give him a job because they remember what happened. You see, when he had built up that fire in his home and had been engulfed in flames, he had forgotten to replace the grate that protected the fireplace from the rest of the house. Lee realizes that he's not going to be able to do this, and so he makes arrangements with another family member to adopt Patrick. And near the end of the film, he's sitting at the dining room table with his nephew, Patrick, and Patrick is is looking at him and through tears says, why can't you stay? And Lee looks at Patrick and says simply this, I can't beat it. I can't beat it. Lee recognized that he was going to be unable to escape the demon's of his past. Now I want you for just a moment to put yourself in Lee's shoes. And I want you to feel for a moment as you put yourself in his shoes. I want I want you to try to feel for a moment the weight, the guilt, the weight of the shame. I want you to try to imagine for a moment that feeling of being completely defeated, that feeling of being completely trapped by a past that you can't atone for. How do you make up something like that to someone? Well, I believe that this is the question that faces each one of us as we stand before God. Maybe we haven't made a critical error like that. But how do we live with the wrong that we've done? How do we process our past, the sins? 
the mistakes that we've made, the things that we've done that we deeply regret, that we deeply feel shame for, many of which or some of which we just can't fix. Things that we can't atone for. How do we live with the guilt and shame of the things that we have done? Well, I believe those questions are answered in the text that we are looking at this morning. If you're there in Hebrews chapter 2, I want you to turn your attention to verses 17 and 18 as we read those verses together again. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, the Word of God says this, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of, his, of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now last Sunday, if you were with us, you'll remember that we talked about the very first phrase in verse 17, that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. And we began considering this truth that is the guiding truth throughout the three weeks leading up to Christmas, Christmas Day. That main idea is this, simply, Jesus was just like us. Christmas is the time of year when we celebrate the incarnation, and the incarnation is a fancy word that refers to the miracle of God taking on human flesh. And last week, one of our objectives in the message as we meditated on these verses a little bit together was to try as best we could to have more than a two-dimensional picture of Jesus. Sometimes the version of Jesus that we have in our hearts, that we have in our heads, that we have in our minds is, is frustratingly 2D. Yes, Jesus had a body, he had hands, he had feet, he could reach out and shake someone's, shake someone's hand, he could, be, he could be cut, he could be hurt, he had a body, but the Bible says that he was made just like us in every respect, and I said last week, I asked for you to think about all the things that make you, you. All the intangible pieces of your personality, your likes, your dislikes, your inclinations. And we used the scriptures to, to try to fill out that picture of a Jesus who feels emotions and passions and affections as we do. But I want to point out now this morning a phrase from our text that we didn't spend a whole lot of time with last week. You see, our text doesn't just say that Jesus was made like us in every respect. Our text says that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. In other words, the, the Bible is using here the language of necessity, right? Jesus had to be made like us. It was necessary for Jesus to be made like us in every respect. Every respect. And we, under, we need to understand the nature of that necessity. 
When the Bible says that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect, it is not saying that God's hand was forced in some way. For God to be God means that he is utterly unconstrained by forces outside of him. God never finds his hand forced. God never finds himself painted into a corner. So the necessity has to be related to something else. And we see in the verses that we've read together that that necessity, that had to be, is directly connected to his purpose. It is directly connected to his objective. It is directly connected to his mission. If Jesus was going to do what he came to do, it was necessary, it had to be, that he took on human flesh, but not only human flesh, but everything that makes us human, so that he could accomplish that mission or objective. Now, it was necessary for Jesus to be made just like us in every way for at least two reasons that are given in our text in these verses that we just read. We're going to look at one of them today, and then next week, Lord willing, we are going to look at the other one. But I want us to see, first of all, in verse 17, in the first place, Jesus had to be just like us in order to make propitiation. Jesus had to be made just like us so that, that's the language of an objective and a language of purpose, so that he could make propitiation. Now, propitiation is probably not a word that you've used this week. Maybe. But this is not a word that we throw around very often. So I want us to just start by making sure we're on the same page of what exactly propitiation is. Propitiation is atonement. Propitiation is conciliation. Propitiation is the appeasing of God's wrath that provides pardon for our sin. Now, we don't like to think about God's wrath. And if we do like to think about it, we like to think about God's wrath for other people's sin. But certainly not ours. And we can, we can try to escape the concept of God's wrath. We can try to relegate the concept of God's wrath as, as being something that's wholly part of the Old Testament. But the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, tells us that God demonstrates his wrath against sin. And propitiation... The appeasement of God's wrath is not going to be good news to us. It's not going to be good news to me. It's not going to be good news to you until we reconcile ourselves to the reality of God's wrath. The Bible says that God's wrath is directed against our sin. 
And propitiation is not going to become good news to you until we come, till I come, till you come to the same defeated place that Lee Chandler came to when he was sitting around that dining room table and said those simple words, I can't beat it. How can we atone for our sin? The message of the gospel is not the steps that humankind must go through to make atonement for their sin. The gospel, the message of the gospel is an announcement of what God has done to atone for our sin. It is a declaration of what God has done to appease, to propitiate his own wrath. And he does that through the incarnation, through the miraculous taking on flesh of Jesus Christ, whom our text says becomes just like us in every respect for the express purpose of making propitiation where you and I are utterly incapable of doing so. And these verses tell us that Jesus work of propitiation is directly related to his work as a priest. And our text discusses this propitiating priest in two ways that I want to point out to you this morning. I want us to see, first of all, the work of this propitiating priest. The work of this propitiating priest. And if we're going to talk about the work of a priest, then we might back up and say, well, what exactly is a priest and what does a priest do? For most of us, when we hear the term priest, we immediately think of a person wearing all black with a little white collar. But that's not the kind of priest that's being discussed here in our text. The the history behind this term has roots all the way back into the Old Testament to the priests who served God's people the Israelites. And what are priests? Well, a priest was a mediator. A priest is a mediator. It's a person who goes between God and humanity. And we see the institution of the priesthood immediately after God's people are rescued from Egypt. One of the very first things that God does as he lays out laws that prescribe the life of his people is to institute the priesthood. And the priests are given very specific instructions on everything. Those specific instructions come down all the way to the the clothes, the uniform that the priests were to wear. And one of the primary responsibilities of the priests was to make atonement, to make propitiation, if we were using the word in our text, for the sins of the people. And that work of the priests was a bloody work. Because it involved sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 4, 
after detailed instructions on how the priests were to carry out their duties when it came to sacrificing, the Bible gives the result, the intended result of that work in Leviticus 4 and verse 20. It, says, it concludes this way, and the priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. So God gives the priesthood, God gives the sacrificial system as a way for his people's sins to be atoned for and for them to be forgiven. And so while God does demonstrate his wrath against sin, even in the Old Testament from the very beginning, God was making a way to appease his righteous and holy and just wrath against sin so that we could be forgiven. The work of Jesus as a priest has that history behind it. But one of the things the book of Hebrews does is it it does a contrast between the work of Jesus as a priest and the work of the priests who went before him. And and this, this contrast is done by pointing out the limitations of the merely human priests that preceded him. And as the author of Hebrews points out these limitations of the priests that precede him, he contrasts that with the superiority of the work that Jesus does as priest. One of the first limitations of the priests was their own mortality. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 23 says, The former priests were many in number. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Now, this is stating the obvious. But one of the built-in limitations of the priesthood in the Old Testament is that the priests kept dying. So you've got this revolving door of priests You've got this carousel of priests who are shuffling in and out, performing the duties of making atonement for the sins of the people. But every priest who trembled as he began his, the duties in his office understood that one day he was no longer going to be able to be the go-between between God and the people. Hebrews goes on to say in the following verse, verses, verses 24 to 25, the contrast. Because in verse 24, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' priesthood is superior because he does his work eternally. The Bible says that he continues forever and because he is eternal, Because he lives forever, because the grave could not hold him, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he's always living to make intercession for them. Remember, 
friend, that your priest, Jesus, is seated at the throne of God this very moment, reconciling you to him, making intercession for you in an unbroken way. There's a second limitation of the priests that the book of Hebrews highlights. And that second limitation of the priest was their own sinfulness. Not just their own mortality, but the Bible tells us they were limited by their own sinfulness. The Bible goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Okay, that's a description that you won't see applied to any merely human priest. Verse 27 goes on to say, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, And then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. When you would bring your sacrifice to these priests, before Jesus had come, you were bringing a sacrifice to a person who was sinful and broken as you were. One of the features of the temple and one of the features of the priesthood is that there was a place in the center of the temple, the the holy place, the holy of or the, the most holy place, or some translations call it the holy of holies. But this was a sacred place where the high priest and only the high priest could enter and only one time a year. And one of the things that that stated to everyone is that there was still a sense in which God, though he had chosen to dwell with his people and manifest his presence in the temple, there was still a a separateness of God from his people. And even the high priest, the one who was making atonement for sins and reconciling people to God, even the high priest could only enter the most holy place one time a year. Because he, he was sinful as the people were. The priest's own sin prevented them from mediating perfectly between God and humanity. But Jesus' priesthood, by contrast, is superior because he does his work perfectly. He is a priest, innocent, holy, unstained, separated from sinners who then runs to them and makes atonement for them. The third limitation of the priests was found in the sacrifices they offered. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11 says, and every priest stands daily at a service Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. They stand daily, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, 
which can never take away sin. Now, of course, God had set this system up as a way for dealing with sin. And so this system that could never fully take away sin was God-ordained. But it was a system that pointed to its own inherent limitations. It was a system that pointed to the need of a sacrifice that would fully and finally deal with sins once and for all. And Hebrews tells us something shocking. Something shocking that we have become so used to. Not only is Jesus the perfect priest who is eternal and sinless, but Jesus is himself the perfect propitiation. This priest sacrifices himself. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26 tells us that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When this perfect priest offers himself as a perfect sacrifice, there is no longer this need for priests to stand daily at their sacrifices, offering repeatedly the same thing over and over, which can never fully take away sin. Because when Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice, our sins were fully and finally dealt with. This priest sheds his own blood. And Jesus' priesthood is superior because he does his work completely. It saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jesus had to be made 100% human so that he could be both a perfect priest and a perfect propitiation. You may have lived a pretty decentish life. You're not an axe murderer. Not a, you didn't lead a, a thieve, thieving ring of jewel thieves. But the truth of the matter is is that all of us are sinners. While we may not all have sinned to the lengths and depths that we could, praise God, the Bible does tell us that there is no one that is righteous, not even one. The Bible tells us that we are at our, even our, our, our best actions at their core have experienced the corrupting influence of sin. And I sin in word and thought and deed every day. Even in my best moments, my motivations are tainted. I can't do one good thing without thinking, somebody there to see that? <laughs> if you're like me, not an actor, 
not a person who has committed the greatest sins. But if you're like me and you look back over your past, there are probably things that you regret. And there are probably things that you regret that are not the garden variety regret like, uh, that was a miss. Wish I could have done it that way. No, if you're like me, there are things that you have said and done that you deeply regret. You feel, when you think about those things, a deep sense of shame. When, as, when those things come to your mind, maybe when you're laying in bed at night and you're trying to go to sleep and that's when all the thoughts happen, you feel that sense of guilt as you remember that again. Most of us, many of us have things like that and they're the kinds of things you can't go back and get a do-over on. What's been done, been done. Now, I'm not encouraging you to remember those things because I want you to feel a sense of renewed shame so that you're better people. I'm asking you to revisit those things. I'm asking you to have those thoughts because we need to have a refreshed appreciation for what Christ has done for us. You see, some of those things that we think about from our past that we can't get a do-over on, those, there are words that you say that you just can't have back. You said it. And you can apologize, but you said it. You can apologize, but you did it. And we have a, a sense of helplessness, and we can have a sense of defeat when we think about our sins and how we can climb out of this. And the reason the message of the gospel is such good news is because the Bible tells us there a priest has come. And that priest has made an atonement before a holy God that you could never do if you had a thousand lifetimes to do it over. And this priest not only perfectly, perfectly and completely atones for your sin and reconciles you to God, but this work of this priest makes it possible for you to leave your guilt and to leave your shame and to live in the freedom of perfect and complete forgiveness. Man, if you're a sinner... You need that news. And let me just say to someone who might be here with us this morning and you have never experienced the grace and the forgiveness of Christ, you need to recognize that the Bible says that there is nothing you can do to atone for the wrong that you have done. But when you look in the manger, you ought to see a priest. Jesus had to be made like us so he could atone for our sins. And he offers that atonement. He offers that forgiveness to everyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in Christ. You could do that 
right now and experience a freedom that you have not experienced in years. Now, someone might ask, why should I trust him? Why should I trust this priest, Jesus? And that leads me to the second point that I want to make. We've seen the work of this propitiating priest, but now I want us to see from these verses that we've read together the character of this propitiating priest. Our text gives us two characteristics of this propitiating priest. The first one we can see in verse 17 is that he is merciful. He's merciful. While there were, are, are many examples, if you're reading through the Old Testament, while there are many examples of, of, of good priests throughout Israel's history, the Old Testament is full of rebuke towards the priests. It's actually pretty striking as you start looking at it. Here you have people who have been trusted with the sacred, special responsibility of making atonement for the sins of the people. The priests, of all people, had a front row seat to the people's desperate need for mercy, right? If anyone would know, it's the priests who see the sacrifices brought to the temple day in and day out. But repeatedly, we see the priests described as drunks in Isaiah 28 and verse 7, as thieves in Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 26, as greedy in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 13, as ungodly in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 11. They are called murderers in Lamentations chapter 4 and verse 13. They are called idolaters in Hosea chapter 10 and verse 5. I could give more. But do you see the point that I'm making? Remember the parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10? A guy's been beaten up, robbed, left for dead on the side of the road. And as Jesus tells this story, there are is a series of people who encounter that man along the way. And one of the people who encounters that man along the way is a priest. And what does the Bible tell us? What does Jesus tell us in the parable that the priest does? He goes to the other side of the road. <sighs> Pretends he doesn't see it. Do you remember what Jesus asked? There's a question that Jesus asks at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, who was the good neighbor? And the answer to that question that the people get right when they hear that parable is, the one who showed what? Mercy. The priest whose job it is to show mercy is one of the ones who does not. But wouldn't it encourage you to know that Jesus, your high priest, 
is a one who always and unfailingly is characterized by mercy. Jesus sees you in a heap at the side of the road and he doesn't walk by on the other side. He walks towards you. Jesus moves towards us in mercy. We're a mess, yet he moves towards us in mercy. He moves to us in our hurt. He moves to us in our sin. He moves to us in our weakness and at our ugliest state. Those things are never off-putting to him. The picture that the Bible gives us of Jesus as a priest is not one who goes through the motions of doing his duties, but one who constantly performs his responsibilities with mercy. When he looks at us in all of our problems, when he looks at you in all of your problems and all of your weaknesses and all of your still haven't got it together yet, it's the song we often sing says, there's mercy in his eyes. He understands because he was made like us in every way. There's a second characteristic of our propitiating priest, it's that he is also not just merciful, but faithful. There are two notorious priests in the Old Testament. They're sons of Eli. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. That's, that's going deep into the archives of the Old Testament to pull that out. But Eli's got two sons named Hophni and Phinehas. And Hophni and Phinehas, the Bible describes them in a couple different occasions of being completely self-centered. They are in it for number one. They are not there as priests to serve. They are there to be served. And God becomes sick of their behavior towards the people. He promises that they are going to be judged. And in that promise of judgment towards Hophni and Phinehas, he makes a promise in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 35. He says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. In other words, God's promising that there's going to be a, a priest coming who's going to do what God wants him to do. And Hebrews tells us that this promised priest has come. The very next chapter of Hebrews, we've been in chapter 2, the very next chapter in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. We need somebody who can perform a reconciling work on our behalf to bring us to God, to faithfully do it. And Jesus is our priest 
our faithful priest who does exactly that and does it for all eternity and is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father right now, faithfully interceding for you. Manchester by the Sea is not a film about redemption. Sometimes we like to watch the films where the hurt person comes in and they, they don't want to be reconciled. They feel like they can't fix it and everybody gathers around them and they have this redemptive moment. That's not this film. Because a lot of times that's not life, is it? Lee Chandler's brother seems to be making attempt, an attempt at helping him atone. He's trying to bring him back to his hometown so that he can live there. He's entrusting his own son to his care. It's like in his death, he's telling him that he still loves him and that he still trusts him. There are hopeful moments. Lee's bond with Patrick is restored throughout this process. He has a conversation, an awkward conversation with his ex-wife where she forgives him and asks his forgiveness for some of the things that she said following the wake of the tragedy. But Lee doesn't stay home. He goes back to Boston. The death of Lee's brother was not enough for him to beat his past. But we have a brother. And our brother gives us more than a well-meaning but feeble attempt at atonement. We have a brother whom Hebrews 2 tells us has as his mission, his objective, his purpose to through death destroy death and bring many sons to glory. Which means that our brother is bringing us home. In fact, we have a brother who was made like us in every respect for the purpose of being a merciful and faithful high priest, fully atoning for our sins so that we can be forgiven and our guilt and our shame can be gone. And he is, as we're about to sing in a few moments, our living hope. We can't beat it. You can't beat it. But as we're going to sing, hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Sin has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain for salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Let's pray and ask God to help us believe it.
Lord, we want to thank you for the work of Jesus on our behalf this morning. We want to thank you that we have a high priest who is now at this moment seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God making intercession for us. We want to thank you, Lord, that we no longer have to bear the weight of our sin, the weight of our guilt, the weight of our shame, that you have forgiven us of our sin, that you have separated them from us as far as the east is from the west, that you have buried them in the deepest parts of the sea, that you have sprinkled our consciences clean so that we can walk in freedom. So Lord, I pray that you help us to live and sing like people who can't believe they're free. Who can't believe that the news is that good. Lord, if there's someone here today who needs to be released from the chains of sin, give them the grace, I pray, to repent of that sin and to put their faith in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.